All right, everybody, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, this is the second of the Q&A session, so there are some questions that you probably want to ask that were already answered in the previous session, and they've been recorded. So particularly all the Calvinism and Arminian stuff, that was a big chunk of the last one. So we won't go back there unless you have a new question about that, but you can get the recordings when they're available online. Thank you, Gary, for recording this. Um, we're going to jump right in. So again, if you have a question come up, you can write it on a three by five card and give it to us. If you have, if you, if we're talking about something and you have a question about that thing, just raise your hand. You don't have to write it down. Uh, and we'll see where the discussion takes us. We have a couple places that we're going to start with. And the first one is the issue of creation. Um, what do we do with Genesis one? What do we do with, uh, reconciling or understanding the biblical account of creation in light of Uh, all that we have uh, available to us in science. Uh, And this question has been posed to us in a couple different ways. Let me read um, a couple of these questions. Um, Two that were particularly uh, different. How should we answer the questions regarding creation? How literal is the biblical account? So that's kind of a a good general question. That's how we often get it. And then one that's actually really relevant. I just saw a news article on this, I think, last week. So this must be relatively new. Uh, I've heard that geneticists say that the current human population could not have come from a gene pool of just two individuals. Is the story of Adam and Eve to be interpreted literally or no? That was... I was maybe CNN last week. There was an article about that, that uh, Human Genome Project has concluded that we must have a very, very large number of first human descendants in the thousands to explain the genetic differences and anomalies between human beings. So it's impossible to have just two. So, um, so that's a good question. That's tough stuff. What do we do with creation? Let me throw out some general principles. Um, Matt is actually an expert about a lot of this. He has answered this question a lot too. So um, he'll, I'm sure, throw some good stuff in too. Um, where this comes, really the place to start is to, for just all of us to admit this is an incredibly hard question. There is no easy answer to how do you reconcile the biblical account of creation with the evidence we see. Even the one, that, you know, even the young earth creationism, you take it as literally as possible. Even that one is still difficult in the biblical account. If you've read Genesis 1, you know that the account lists off these things that God does on six days. Well, we have morning and evening for each of those days, and yet the, the sun and moon are not created until well down that chain, I think day number four. Well, but we define morning and evening by daylight and, and moon. How do you have morning and evening when there's no sun and moon until day four? It is just a very complex issue. How are we to understand the biblical account in light of what we see in the world around us? Um, I think what, what we would present to you guys is that, first of all, um, what you need to do is you need to separate out what are the essential issues. What must you believe to be biblical? And um, let me share with you how, how we understand that, where our position is. There's just a few things when it comes to creation that you absolutely must believe. It's just essential to your understanding of Scripture. Number one, however he did it, God did it. If you want to know what is the real meaning of Genesis 1, why was Genesis 1 written? It was written to tell you God did it. Um, it's interesting to compare a lot of the language that Moses used in Genesis 1 with Egyptian creation accounts, remarkably similar. Okay, But in the Egyptian creation accounts, they are attributed to a pantheon of Egyptian gods. It's Ra and his consorts who are creating a lot of the same language in Genesis 1. Why? Because Moses is writing to people who just came out of Egypt, and he wants them to understand it was not Ra and his consorts who did this. It was Yahweh. 
our God, our one God created everything. So you cannot escape Genesis 1's meaning that however he did it, Yahweh made all things. Yahweh alone, not a collection of gods. It was Yahweh's doing it by intention and power and freedom of choice. He was not compelled to do it. God did it. Okay, so that's, that's number one big thing that you walk out of Genesis 1 with. It's telling us that God did it. The second thing uh, that I think it's telling us is that God did it. Um, well, the second thing, the second most important thing that it's telling us is that in the midst of doing that, in creating all things, God gave a special place to humanity. That actually is also really significant when you look at other creation accounts, whether they be um, Egyptian or Greek or wherever they may come from. Usually, if not always, mankind is kind of accidental in the creation legends of ancient peoples. And all the other creation myths, mankind is an accident or uh, happened and it was uh, actually bad that man was created. The gods have no care for man. It's all kinds of crazy, violent, awful, immoral ways that humanity came into existence in all of these creation myths. And, and Moses says, no, God reveals through Moses, no, human beings are the prize of my creation. They are the culmination. They're the focus. They're the unique. They're my image bearers, man and woman. Adam and Eve created as my unique image bearers to represent me upon earth. Now, it's actually because God wants to so emphasize that that we have both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. I don't know if you've studied that. We, don't have, we won't take time this morning to read through those. But you, you have a retelling of the creation account in Genesis 2. A lot of people wonder that. Why does, why does Moses tell us about creation in Genesis 1? And then tell it to us again in Genesis 2. Well, because Genesis 2 is a different perspective. Genesis 1 is the whole earth. I'm looking at all the land. Genesis 2, I'm looking just at Adam and Eve. It's how God formed Adam special, how he brought Eve special to Adam. It's emphasizing that in all of creation, humanity is unique. They are special. They are the culmination of what God was doing. So when we, when we look at the creation account, the essentials that we have to keep in mind are God did it. He did all of it, and he did it, uh, you could say he did it for his glory. He wasn't compelled into doing it. It wasn't cosmic warfare between gods like in these other creation myths. God chose to create, and the pinnacle of his creation is man and woman, Adam and Eve, his kingdom representatives. Now, with those ideas in mind, they actually bring us to some interesting answers, I think, to these two. The, the article about the genetic stuff um, that I was reading and apparently is referenced here, um, there is a major problem with uh, saying that the, the idea of Adam and Eve is legend or maybe that it's representative or it's metaphorical. Problem is, is the entire biblical account of sin and depravity are based on the reality of Adam and Eve. It is essential that Adam and Eve not only existed, but that then they then freely chose to sin because that's the whole argument of depravity. They chose to sin and as a result, we are all sinners. Romans 5, and when Paul talks about Adam in the New Testament, he doesn't talk about him as a figurative person or metaphorical or representative of the whole early humanity. No, there's Adam, this one man, just like there's one man, Jesus, not a thousand men, Jesus. There's one Jesus, there's one Adam. Adam made his choice, sin, it led to death. Jesus made his choice, it brought salvation and righteousness. Okay, so Adam and Eve, we don't have a choice there. If Adam and Eve are moved into legend or metaphor, the whole of Scripture falls apart on us. So Adam and Eve really did exist. Now, that brings the related question, okay, where did Adam and Eve come from? Are Adam and Eve, uh, it was Adam literally created from mud, imbued with the Holy Spirit, made man, or did he evolve from monkeys? 
Okay, what do we do with that? Um, that one, likewise, I would say there's major problems in that evolutionary model that we just progressed from monkeys and became what we are today. What is the problem? It says specifically we were specially created by God to be his image bearers, to represent him over the animals in a way that none of them can do. Okay, so there has to be something special about Adam and Eve. They cannot just be part of a long evolutionary chain of accident that just happened because that, again, would cause the entire biblical account to fall apart because it is essential. Human beings were specially created by God to be his kingdom representatives on earth and bear his image. Okay, so those are just some of the essentials. Then you get into the question, okay, beyond those essentials, how are we to interpret Genesis 1 in light of all the scientific evidence. And there are a lot of answers to that out there, actually. A lot of people wrestling with that and struggling with it. The most obvious answer in a church that's usually given is, is the young earth model, that it's, it's as literal as it could possibly be. Um, it's the, the days that are mentioned are literally 24 hours. When it talks about the land, it's talking about the whole earth. And this is what God did to create all of life upon the earth. And you should take it literally like that and that was some seven to ten thousand years ago that that happened certainly an option now that presents significant problems for us in terms of the scientific evidence but biblically you can make a very strong case that that's the interpretation of those passages a second option is uh, a day age option old earth creationism so when the hebrew uses the word yom right uh, for day that it means more an age so each of these things was a long stage of time Uh, that's possible. So when did it begin? Who knows? Very, very long time ago. Problem is, is, um, it's very hard to see how that kind of creation could work. Again, you don't have uh, sun and moon until like day four and you have plants before that. Um, How in the world does that happen? Plants are are by, by necessity, they need the sun. So how do you have an age of plant life with no sunlight? So there's some problems with that one also. Um, there's a view that says that Genesis 1 is actually not, was never meant by Moses to be a scientific or historic account of creation. It was actually meant to be an apologetic argument, and he uses the forms and language of Egyptian creation legends and just shows how, no, it's God who did all of that. Moses' point was not to say it happened in exactly this way. His point was to say, you've heard from the Egyptians that their gods did it this way. Let me tell you, no, it's actually Yahweh who did it. I'm going to use their same, and it, it's interesting. There's a lot of poetry actually in Genesis 1. Maybe it's more meant to be poetic and an apologetic. So there's a school of thought out there that interprets it that way. The school of thought that that says when it says right at the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the whole universe, the whole planet earth. Um, The earth was formless and void. Actually in Hebrew, that word earth is, uh, can also be translated land. Okay, it can be earth, the whole, the whole of earth, or it could just be land. And you look at this concept of land in the Old Testament. Well, there's, there's one piece of land above all else which God cares about in the Old Testament. It's what we call Palestine and the areas around that, from like the Euphrates to the Nile. That area is God's land in the Old Testament. Maybe Genesis 1 is just about what God is doing with that piece of land as he prepares the Garden of Eden for Adam and Eve, as he pushes back the chaos of early creation and forms order and structure in this perfect piece of land that Adam and Eve will end up 
getting kicked out of. Maybe that's what's going on. So um, those are some of the most common ones that I have heard out there. And which one do I hold to? I, I don't know yet, to be perfectly honest. I'm still wrestling through that as well because it's really hard to put all these pieces together. Again, in this debate, it's essential to distinguish in our minds what are the absolutes that we have to hold fast to and what are the things that we can wrestle with. Existence of Adam and Eve, specially created by God, I don't see how you can let go of that one. Uh, The idea that God created it wasn't just by chance or accident, I don't see how you can let go of that one. Because those are the essential meanings of the text in Genesis 1 and 2. Now I'm going to pause and let you throw some more. Blake brought up a few. There's a couple others that I would add as well. One would be some people hold to what's called a days of proclamation Idea, and that is that what Genesis is describing in Genesis 1 is God's verbal proclamation of the creation of the world um, that then set in motion processes by which it would happen. And so those days, those consecutive days, are when God is saying, let there be light, you know, let there be um, an, you know, separation, let there be an expanse, let there be vegetation. And it was in the sense that what God speaks does come into being. And so it's as if it had happened but that what it is describing is God's actual proclamation on those consecutive days. So that, that view would hold the days, the word yom, to be a literal day, but that not the completion of that whole process didn't necessarily take place within the, that 24 hours. It took place over a period of time. And the other view that is it's a smaller group at some hold would be that it's like a, a divine drama, almost like you have in Revelation where God shows John the future of the world in kind of a vision. This could be God, in a sense, showing Moses a vision. And so what Moses is describing is, in the context of the vision or the drama that he's seeing in heaven, the consecutive days of what God showed him, but isn't necessarily saying this is when, you know, that God did these things in these seven days. But he's saying on the first day, this is what I saw God do. On the second day, this is what I saw God do. And so those are two other options of ways that people... Um, interpret it. And the balance is what people are trying to do with all of these is figure out how do we reconcile some things that we seem to see with scientific data, particularly related to the age of the earth, but also some challenges with um, if it looks like uh, humanity evolved from other previous life forms. How do we reconcile all of that data to the Bible? And so you can see like on one end you, you have young earth creationists who would say, well, we don't really necessarily, sometimes they will, they will try to reconcile the scientific data, but it, it involves really a total reinterpretation of the scientific data. And so the priority is uh, face value reading of the text looks like 6,000 years, and that's how old the earth is. And so that's what they go with. On the other end, you would have people that would say, that there would be theistic evolutionists who would say, well, God kind of set things in motion and then just backed up. Most of your your stronger theistic evolutionists are also not inerrantists. They don't hold to the literal truth of the Bible. But there are some who do. There are some theistic evolutionists who do, and they try to reconcile Genesis 1 with what they see going on in science. But a lot of them, the, the, the extreme over here would be those that say, well, you just can't do it. So what must have happened is there's a God out there, and he just kind of set things in motion, and then evolution just sort of happened. But within evangelicals who really are trying to wrestle with the text and wrestle with science, there's a variety of different views. So let me, I wanted to take a couple of questions that are related. Um, 
This one will lead into the other question. Um, as college students who are about to enter into the real world, what is the biggest issue or controversy you think we'll, we will face as believers in the next 10 years? Um, I really think that we're already seeing this, but I think it, it relates to the issue of homosexuality. Um, I think that the, the question of sexual ethics and how do we approach that area as believers is already the biggest thing that I think many believers are facing out there, and I think it's going to continue to be that way. And in particular, as you you have more and more um, who are um, within the kind of the broad circle of Christianity that are argue, trying to argue that homosexuality is acceptable uh, behavior, um, it's it's becoming a very, very big issue. And as I look at just being in college ministry, as I look at the challenges that are facing you guys in college ministry, I would say it's, it is the bigger issue um, that's going to face y'all. And so a couple of y'all had questions that are specific to that issue that uh, I wanted to address. Um, this one says, people can choose to engage in homosexual acts or choose not to, but can people choose their sexual orientation? Uh, if not, why would God create homosexuals if that is not the design he has for sex? Okay, so basically the question here is, is homosexual attraction, is that a choice or is that something that people have no control over? Is it somewhere in between? Uh, the way the question is phrased, I essentially do agree with that homosexual behavior, just like heterosexual behavior, is a choice. Um, our actions are fundamentally something that we we choose to do now can you choose your orientation um i and, and I'm, i may modify that a little bit I, I don't know that i'm completely comfortable with the way the word sexual orientation tends to be used um, when i think of orientation I, I think of a person has a, a tendency or a desire to act in a particular way often it's used orientation in our culture is used as almost a um, defining trait of an individual, um, I am a heterosexual, or I am bisexual, or I am homosexual, and that's a defining trait. When I'm talking about orientation, I'm talking more about what is it that uh, when I am naturally, uh, when what I naturally tend to think and want to act out sexually, is that a choice? Um, so, our homosexual is homosexual attraction a choice? That's an interesting question. Um, Biblically speaking, here's what we can say, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about some uh, research and some, some things scientifically for just a second. But biblically speaking, we can definitely say, like the question says, uh, behavior is a choice. Um, and we can say, and we can talk about this morning, the scripture clearly does define homosexual behavior as sinful. All right, 1 Corinthians 6, um, Romans 1, 1 Timothy uh, it's chapter six as well, I think, or it's First Timothy, um, that that homosexual behavior is a choice. Now, the, the Bible addresses our tendencies towards sin, and Romans one is a good illustration that we all are running away from God. We all are headed on this downward path of sin apart from God's intervention, right? And and it is in Jesus Christ that God intervenes. So we all have tendencies towards sin. Not all of us have the tendency toward homosexual sin, but we all have tendency toward some kind of sin. Um, now, from a kind of social and scientific perspective, homosexuality, the big question is, 
does a person choose his sexual orientation? Does he choose to be homosexual or not? Um, as uh, different people have answered that question, some people would say homosexuality is a genetic uh, predisposition that you are born with, that um, you're born and there's something in your genes that makes you have homosexual uh, attraction or desires. Others would say, no, it's, it's a choice. Some people would say it's environmental. Um, the interesting thing is, and I, I kind of chased this down a couple of years ago, there have been a number of articles, you know, and things like Time, Newsweek, all this kind of stuff, where, that have claimed that we found the gay gene or whatever it may be, that there's a, there's a gene that when this particular gene is in place, uh, that means that you are going to be predisposed to homosexuality. The reality is that uh, that's not true. Um, and there's actually not been a reliable, controlled study that has demonstrated in any way that homosexuality is a genetic um, predisposition. So, for example, one of the studies uh, looked at different areas of the brain uh, in men who, had, uh, who, who were homosexual, who had died from AIDS and compared them to the brain of a normal uh, or heterosexual male who had died from natural causes. And, and certain areas of the brain were larger in these men who had died from AIDS and were homosexual. And so they concluded, well, there must be certain areas of the brain then that are larger that predispose people to homosexuality. And so you get a big article of, well, there's an area of the brain that predisposes you to homosexuality. The problem with the study is, um, well, there's several problems. One, they were looking at people who had died from a disease, right? They don't know for sure if the disease caused what's going on in their brain or if their behavior uh, was traced to that. The other thing is, even if the disease didn't cause it, they don't know which came first. In other words, they don't know certain areas of your brain will change depending upon how you act and what kind of input and stimuli you give to your brain. And so they don't know, it's a chicken egg question. Does homosexual behavior cause one's brain to change in certain ways? Or does the way one's brain is wired cause homosexual behavior? All right. And so the cause effect questions are really the big issues that have never been resolved. Even when they look at genetics and DNA, they've not been able to isolate cause versus effect in some of these DNA issues as well. Um, they've not really been able to isolate a gene that is consistent among homosexual males or females that would lead to this behavior. The stronger studies that have been done are environmental. Um, and what they show is that uh, there's certain patterns, particularly as they've studied homosexual males over time, there's certain patterns within their family and within their early life that strongly predispose a person toward homosexuality. Um, one is the relationship of the man with his father. Um, in about 70 to 80% of the cases, as they have studied homosexual males, 70 to 80% of them either come from a divorced home or a home where the father was either abusive or mostly absent. All right? Now, that doesn't mean if you're from a divorced home or your father was abusive or absent that you will be homosexual, but it goes, it's the other direction. When you look at homosexual males, most of them did come from that kind of an environment. And the way, for whatever reason, everybody responds to their parents in different ways and to their environment in different ways. Some people respond to this stre stressful environment by... Um, interacting, particularly men, interacting with males in a way that is, um, it affects their sexuality. So uh, around uh, between four and eight is probably for most of us when we begin to identify really strongly as 
I'm a, I'm a man or I'm a woman, right? And so I, I, as a guy, when I'm about that age, I begin to identify with my father, right? And, and I, in a sense, begin to pull away from wanting to identify as much with mom, and now I want to be daddy's guy, all right? Um, for men that don't have then a father that is available to attach to, um, often what happens is they do begin to, they, they stay attached to the females in their family and the, the father figure or the male figure becomes in a sense the other, the mysterious, uh, attractive, wanted other because it's not in their life. And so for some men, that's how they respond and it all gets mixed up with their feelings of sexuality, which are kind of just beginning to develop a little bit in that stage of their life. All right. And, and the other thing is that they have found more consistently is, you know, if, if, we, if we were to take a general sample of the population, particularly men, and say how many of you men were sexually abused at a young age um, before you were 12, um, it'd be about three to five percent of the general population would say that they were in some way sexually abused by a person of the same sex, which is still a pretty big number. It's a sad number. When you look at homosexual uh, adult males, it's more like 30 to 40% who were sexually abused by someone of the same sex when they were before they were 12. And so, again, right as those uh, kind of, they're beginning to experience a sexual identity, they experience a trauma that, that defines, in a sense, how they respond sexually. So all that to say... Bottom line is this, does a person wake up in the morning and say, I can be homosexual, heterosexual, whatever, and I'm going to choose this one? No, that's not exactly how it works. Is it genetic? Probably not. Um, it seems like it's a combination of environmental factors. Now, that having been said, does that excuse behavior? Well, no, right? Because all of us have predispositions from our particular environment, right? I might have grown up in an environment where my parents were impatient or angry or frustrated all the time. And as a result, my natural response to stress is to yell at people, right? Does that mean it's okay? Well, no, certainly not, right? I might've grown up in an environment where alcohol was very prominent and abused. And so I naturally want to respond to stress by drinking a couple of bottles, right? Is that okay? No, it's still sinful. All of us have environmental tendencies and particular tendencies that lead us or tempt us towards sin, but we are still called to live uh, in the spirit as believers, all right? And, and it's still, we still are responsible for the actions that we choose uh, to do. So um, let me pause for just a second there because there may be questions on that topic in particular. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, hard, it's hard scripturally for me to say why the culture leans and our culture leans in a particular way. I think a lot of it is people always are going to look for ways to justify themselves. And I mean, I think you see that pretty consistently. You see that with even the Pharisees with Jesus. You know, this guy who asks Jesus, um, who's my neighbor? You know, the idea is, well, he knows he's not treating people like neighbors, so... He gets to a theological issue of who really is my neighbor? And so maybe there's some people I don't have to treat well. So I think all of us have kind of a predisposition to want to justify ourselves. I think that's natural. I think culturally, unfortunately, um, there's, a, there's a variety of factors. I think one is uh, we have a culture that is very libertine in its approach to sexuality. And so 
wants to argue that every behavior is okay as long as, most people would say, as long as it doesn't directly hurt another individual. Now, unfortunately, and you, when you look at health statistics and things like that, homosexuality really does hurt people. It hurt, physically, it hurts them. It hurts them in, in a variety of different ways, but that's not what our culture would want us to believe because we have a very libertine view of, of all of these things. I think there is another factor, and that is, unfortunately, from a traditional perspective, the Christian evangelical church in this country has not done just a knock-it-out-of-the-park job of addressing this issue. Um, the, the responses have either been to ignore the issue and kind of pretend like it doesn't exist, or simply to pull out the passages that say the behavior is wrong without offering um, any sort of hope or alternative. And without dealing, I also think, with behavioral issues are always affected by um, spiritual issues. And so when we talk about homosexuality or any sin, it's, you know, as Jesus says, it's from the heart that these things well up. It's not because you have dirty hands. It's not because of external things that you sin. It's Sin starts in the heart. And so I think with homosexuality, part of this is also helping people know what does a healthy relationship with other people and with God look like? Um, Exodus International does a great job of saying, the opposite of homosexuality is actually not heterosexuality, it's holiness. Um, and I think often we haven't done a great enough job because we approach people to say, we want you to stop being gay instead of approaching people to say, I want you to know Jesus and pursue him. And as you know Jesus and pursue him, his spirit will convict your heart of sin, whether it's homosexuality, whether it's greed, whether it's any other kind of sin the Spirit will transform you. And so I think pointing people to Jesus is really the best answer in the long run for dealing with this, this challenge. But we haven't always done that well. Yeah. Let me add a, a few things to that and, and in general in this. Um, I, I think one of, there's a, a few things going on. <clears throat> I think Matt has hit the nail on the head in the sense that the church has um, been its own worst enemy to some extent in this debate. We've done a lot of things well, but for a long time we we made homosexuality like this, the pinnacle sin. You know, it's like the untouchable thing um, when it is just one of many sins that Scripture lists. I think it's significant as we go through Romans 1, and we'll be going through the second half of Romans 1 here in a couple of weeks. When Paul, you know, you guys know Romans 1 is like this spiral of sin. Uh, it just keeps getting worse and worse as they sin and God hands them over. Well, homosexuality is mentioned in great detail. We're actually going to do a whole sermon on this, but it's mentioned in the middle of the list. It's not the bottom, like they did bad, 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 and then they reached the very worst possible point, and that is homosexuality. The worst is actually things like slander, gossip, arrogant, boastful. Um, those are the kind of things that really are, are the culmination that Paul brings it to. But yet, in the church, I think, we have often made homosexuality the, the end-all, be-all. And so it's like we just... It, it, it's like this one that, for whatever reason, is, is so offensive to us that it's its own class. And so if you struggle with that one, you are a second-class citizen. And I'm not saying that we as a church have done that, but the church in general has often done that. And we just need to be careful and step back and say, you know what, the, the, the homosexual behavior that Matt's talking about, that is a sin like any other. Sin is sin. It is all infinitely offensive to God. It is all destructive. It is all rebellion. We need to be careful to not classify it as something that is... 
uh, makes a person a second-class citizen. They struggle just like the rest of us do. I, I always find great comfort. Uh, Martin Luther was struggling greatly with temptation. He went and talked to his grandmother, and his grandmother gave him what I think is one of the wisest pieces of advice ever. He said, Martin, you cannot control the birds that fly above your head, but you can control whether you let them land. And that's, that's how you, you can't control what temptations float around. And I think it's really helpful what Matt walked us through. Yet at the end of the day, when the church gets caught up in the question of is homosexuality genetic or is it behavioral or what is it? At some point, we should just say, you know what, that's a conversation to have. But that's not ultimately the issue that we, we don't want to get caught up in that wherever it comes from. It's a sinful temptation. You can't control what temptations flutter above your head. We're not here to judge you. For what temptations you have, we all have our messy, yucky, evil temptations. What we're here to help you do is not let it land. We're here to help you walk, like Matt said, in holiness. And, and I think having that distinction in our mind is really significant. The problem is not that they have this temptation fluttering above their head. The problem is as if they choose to act on it. And it's the same problem if I, as a heterosexual male, having heterosexual sin temptations flutter above my head. If I let that land on my head and act on that, I'm just as guilty as they are. Because it's the same kind of thing, it's sin. And so I think ultimately we as a church need to step back and think about how we're engaging in the discussion and then step forward and address really what is the issue. The issue is God has called us to a life of holiness. Wherever the temptations come from, that's a discussion for another time, but that's not the ultimate issue. The ultimate issue is will you choose to say no to those temptations and walk with the Lord in holiness and let him transform you? So um, I think that we have not done the best at speaking into it. Why is the culture headed this way? Well, from the best we can tell, that's how cultures always head. Actually, the place where Romans 1 does end, the very end bottom of the spiral, verse 32, and although they know the ordinance of, ordinances of God and that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's like the culmination when you look at someone doing what you know is evil and you celebrate it. Well, that's, that's what sinful worlds, sinful cultures do. And so you look at the history of America, we were beneficiaries of the first hour. We maybe were a little too hard on some of the reformers because the reformers did something incredible. They really brought people back to scripture and we benefited for hundreds of years from the, the reformation. But you see that tailing off. And now society is led by Europe and then we're following suit, are pushing the boundaries of sin, because what do we do? We celebrate those who do evil, and the more we celebrate it, the more normal that evil becomes, so that we can begin to celebrate the next type of evil. And so um, that's just the direction that societies go. Churches have this wonderful opportunity to step into that spiral of evil and be a light of grace and a light of truth and a light of love. And hopefully we can do that for our culture. And uh, last thing I'll say is just in the midst of what's going on in our society, we need to remember we don't need to freak out about it. I, I think it's easy for me to kind of freak out about what, you know, what is the Supreme Court talking about today or what's going on in the legislature. At the end of the day, God is sovereign. They're not going to do anything that he doesn't allow to happen. And the expectation I should have in this world is that I'm going to suffer and, and be hated. And so the fact that for many, many years here in America, I as a pastor am not suffering and am not hated by people, that's an anomaly in the history of the world. And it's an anomaly in scripture. So if our society goes off the cliff on this thing and we come under hatred and persecution, that's what we should expect because that's our opportunity to be lights in this world. I, I saw a question. Yes. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think... Um, 
And, and you're asking, I mean, this is a real life question too for me. It's, it's happened, it's, yeah, it's happened in, in our college ministry. Um, I, I, I handle it the same way that I would handle it if a, if a leader stood up and said, I'm, I'm in an active sexual relationship out of marriage with my boyfriend or girlfriend. Um, the, the, the critical issue to me is that if a person professes to embrace a particular sin un, in an unrepentant manner, um, again, whether it's uh, any, any kind of sin, um, sexual sins, or you know, if this person says, you know, I am consistently dishonest and steal from my employer, and I think that's great, I think that's a person that is, we are called to discipline from the standpoint of the scripture. You know, you could look at Matthew 18 where Jesus talks about how you approach an individual who's in sin. You know, you approach him privately, approach him with a couple of people, then, you know, eventually you approach him with the church. If they won't listen to the church, you remove them from fellowship. If, if the person is a leader and they are publicly embracing a sin, uh, then I think we are we're required to remove them from leadership from what I see in the scripture. Because also, as you look at, you know, First Timothy particularly talks about elders and deacons, those who rule and those who serve the church in positions of leadership. There's a list of requirements for them that go beyond um, what might be required for a person just to sit in the assembly. Um, leaders are held to a higher standard. And so, and that, that is actually, that is one issue that, that I think we should bring out even is, is there is a difference between leading an organization and simply participating in some level in an organization because biblically leaders are called to a higher standard. So when we say uh, if a person is in this kind of consistent open sin that we're going to remove them from leadership, that's not legalism. That's following the boundaries that the scripture has set for leaders because leaders are held to a higher standard. So yeah, the answer is... um, we would not allow an elder or a deacon, really even a Bible study leader, to say openly that this is what I am and I think that's okay. Because biblically, they're, they're making... But the issue is, there is a difference with a person, though, who says, I struggle with this issue, but I have accountability. I'm, I'm, I know it's wrong. I'm trying to, to grow with the Lord and change, but I still struggle with this issue, that's a very different circumstance than the individual who would step up and say, "No, this is me, and take it or leave it." Um, it's, a, yeah. it's essential to clarify that to, that, that yeah. definition. Ask them, "What do you mean when you say you are homosexual? Do you mean you, you, those are the temptations that you struggle with?" Well, if somebody is coming to one of us as a leader and saying, I'm homosexual, I struggle with these temptations, um, I'm going to try to get to the root of what they're talking about. If they're saying this is just something I I struggle with these temptations for whatever reason, well, actually, to some extent, that's something that we want to... Um, we want to celebrate that they were open about that. Not that they struggle with those temptations. It's not good that any of us struggle with temptations, but we want them to know, you know what, you, you took a huge risk and you came and, and confessed an area of weakness in your life to somebody in leadership over you. That is awesome that you were willing to be vulnerable like that because that's where holiness can begin is when we're honest with one another. If, if what they mean instead is, well, I'm homosexual and I'm proud of it, that means I'm going to act upon it. I think that this is good that I act on these things or that this is good how I feel. Well, that's, that's a different thing entirely. And so, but we have to be careful to make that distinction because I think a lot of people who are believers in the church have gotten burned when all they meant was, 
I struggle with this, and then they get judged. And it's like, well, there's no reason you should be judged for that. Good job that you were honest. It's just like, you know, any of us confessing, I struggle with sin X. Good. Confess that. Let us know so we can help you and hold you accountable. So it it would all depend on what they mean by the statement. If it's something they are um, acting upon and unrepentant about, then then Matt's right. Then like any other sin, no, you, you can't be in leadership if you are walking in any unrepentant sin. Yeah. And against social justice and all those things. Yeah. You can't control that. It's interesting. A story recently, I was at a Willow Creek, a huge, a massive church in Chicago, does this annual leadership conference. It's, they had like 160,000 people in, in attendance, either at the site or other sites, for this Christian leadership conference. And they brought in a bunch of big speakers. Uh, Governor of New Jersey came in, um, a number of big speakers coming. One of the speakers was Howard Schultz, CEO of Starbucks. Well, right before the event, uh, a group of people on Facebook who are gay started a uh, petition drive to boycott Starbucks because Schultz was going to speak at a church that hated gays. If you know anything about Bill Hybels and Willow Creek, you know he doesn't hate anybody. It's like almost to a fault, the most welcoming church in the world. Really, really good church. They're so loving, so welcoming. And yet they boycotted it, board of Starbucks meets, and he pulls out of his contract at the last minute because they're concerned about what is being represented. Well, you look at that and you think, you know what? Bill Hybels responded great to it. You can actually find his response on a video online. I mean, the man is really good at at delivering truth, but just completely wrapped in love. The response is, show them grace. Expect they're going to misunderstand us. Expect they're going to vilify us because that's what Christians get in the world because that's what Jesus got. I mean, it's Jesus, like the best man possible, and he's hated and vilified. So the expectation is we're going to be misunderstood, hated, and vilified deliver the truth, but what, what really struck me in, in what Hybels did is that out of probably a three-minute to 160,000 and then all over the internet speech that he gave about this event, um, a, a full two and a half minutes were just all grace, grace, grace. We were welcoming. We do not close the door to people who are gay. We absolutely don't. In fact, we have the best news for you in the world, and we desperately want to give it to you. Uh, you know, just so welcoming to people. And then only about 15 seconds of, this is our stand on what is allowable sexually. And even in that, he did just a great job. You know, basically, he said, we, sexuality is something God designed that's beautiful and wonderful to be enjoyed in matrimony between a man and a woman. And in all other places, we're to enjoy chastity. That's that it. Just boom. Just lays that out. And the whole rest of it is just grace and love. And so... Um, remember that the thing that really distinguishes us as a people is the grace that we can give. So when people vilify us, don't vilify back. When people debate against us, yeah, we, we have really good answers. We could really crush them. I, I think in a lot of ways, logically and philosophically, I think there's a lot of things we could say that could put them in their place, but that doesn't get us anything. Just be that, that source of truth surrounded in love and grace to these people. That's what will really turn the day is, is when you share grace that none of the world is sharing. And I would, I would also add to that, just resist the temptation to identify a person by this particular issue. Um, that's actually what the world does is they say that you know, this person's identity is homosexual. And so they begin to see themselves in that light. And then when they come to the church, what we do is we, we often in an unmeaning way, we pound that in even further by focusing on that as the primary defining characteristic of the individual, when really the primary defining characteristic of the individual is that they're made in the image of God, 
who loves them and wants them to know Jesus. And so um, interacting with people, um, they are real people, normal people who, yes, they have a massive uh, perhaps sin struggle that, um, and they may have even a defiant attitude toward church or toward Christians, but they also have desires and hopes and fears and struggles that are related ultimately to their understanding of God and who he is and their relationship with God. And so I think interacting with people also on a holistic level will help a lot. And, and I, I've, I've found that to be the case as sometimes I, I have seen men and women come in to talk about this issue and they're ready to fight when they walk into my office because they're ready to hear nothing but a condemnation of their identity and I think one of the best things we can do is, is listen, pray, pray for them and with them, be concerned, and then at the appropriate time, express what does the Bible say about who you are, what your identity is. And your identity is not as a gay person. Your identity is as a person for whom Jesus died. Um, and I think that makes a big difference in the way we approach people. So, Jordan, I saw your hand a minute ago. Did you? How do you kind of... Um distance yourself from the other extreme like Westboro Baptist Church yeah. like that because I identify as a Christian and people see me as a Christian and then they see Westboro Baptist Church as they're Christians mm-hmm. and definitely not sharing love or grace. I'm usually very open about that kind of thing. You know, if, if that issue comes up of saying do you guys know who Westboro Baptist Church is? Is everybody familiar with that? Okay, some of y'all don't. Westboro is a group of uh, People, yeah, they're, they're, they're an interesting group in Kansas that um, they call themselves a church. Really what they are is they're really a really large family. Um, and they picket at uh, funerals and they go to a number of events and they hold up signs proclaiming God's hatred of homosexuals. Um, and basically that's what they do. So they, they'll go to funerals and that is their kind of one issue is um, how much God hates homosexuals. Um, And so they get a lot of press because um, you guys know most most of the time the press is less concerned with presenting a story as they are with presenting something that makes people interested and want to watch and click the link. And so Westboro gets a lot of press. And so as a result, sometimes you do have people ask you, well, isn't this what Christians are? Is this, you know, um, I'm, I'm usually just open about that issue to say, I don't think those people are representing Jesus. Um, I can't, I cannot speak to the personal salvation of any of those men and women, but the way that they are approaching it is not the way that I see Jesus approaching sinners in the New Testament. Um, I see Jesus approach people offering them grace. And yes, he does proclaim when he needs to the, the reality of sin, that this is wrong, but I, again, we talked about this a little bit the first session. The people that Jesus had the biggest problem with were not typically the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners, but it was the ones who believed that they could somehow earn favor with God by doing the right things. Uh, with the, those who are considered kind of the dregs of society, Jesus is incredibly gracious and compassionate and invites them into his world. And he does speak truth to them. And he tells them, don't do that anymore. And yet he offers them life in Jesus Christ. And so I, I tend to be pretty straightforward to say I don't think that they are reflecting the character of Jesus as I see it in the scriptures. I think they're reflecting their own particular uh, bias and personality. And, and the man who is kind of at the head of that group is, uh, I think he's crazy. 
I mean, I, I think he, he is a guy that, that um, just has a deep-seated hatred for many things. Um, and he doesn't view people, I don't think, as, as Jesus views people. And so I, I, will, I, I don't have a hesitation expressing that when it comes up and then saying, here's, here's what, who Jesus is. I don't, I'm not trying to defend myself. Um, if I need to be defended, God can take care of that. What I do want to do at least is say, Jesus is like this, right? Jesus died for you. Jesus loves you. Jesus wants you to be free from your sin, but he doesn't see you in terms of your identity as a homosexual because you're not. And so his primary purpose in his existence is not to single you out and light you on fire versus all of the other sinners that are standing around you. His desire is to transform you into a person who glorifies him. And he, he does that when you believe in Jesus and the Holy Spirit enters into your life. And so offering them the love of Christ and the truth of Christ, I think, is the best antidote to that. So. John 3.16 is the ultimate answer to that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The world. But, I mean, there, there were homosexuals back in Jesus' day especially in Roman society. And yet knowing that, John says God loved the world. So I I have seen at some of the Westboro demonstrations, there have been counter demonstrations of people who are truly Christians. And by that, I'm not talking about somebody's salvation history, but whether they're representing Christ. True representatives of Christ holding up signs that says God loves gays. Because he does. He truly loves those people to the ultimate extent. He loves them so much that he sent his own son to die for that person. For those of you in the first session... That's why unlimited atonement is so important. We can say God died for every person, including those who are homosexuals who never come to faith, those who reject God completely. Jesus died for them because God loves them to the utter extent, as completely as possible. So to all of that, I think we just respond, yeah, that's not Christian. Whatever that is, it's anti-Christian because what is Christian is God loves gays like he loves everyone. He loves them so much that he wants what's best for them and what's best for them is to walk in holiness just like it's best for all of us. God loves gays. God loves the angry person. God loves the alcoholic, the drug addict. He loves all of us. He loves us so much that through his spirit he wants to transform us so that we can experience life as he designed it, life full of peace and blessing. Great question. Any other follow-ups on this? To another subject. Do you have another one? Yes. Disasters and that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, <laughs> let's see if I can read this one. Uh, since there are a lot of natural disasters and drought and famine, where scripturally does it say what needs to happen in the Middle East for the end times to begin? Well, that question went a different direction than I thought it was going to go. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> That's an end times question. Okay, that's one thing. Um, then there's the other one. What is the best way to deal with the problem of natural evil? Um, yeah, I saw one question somebody just asked straight up. Did you guys get to the question of evil at the beginning? No, Hour? Really. Okay. Uh, the question of evil is the most difficult philosophical question ever thrown out there for anyone who is a monotheist. Uh, we would say that uh, God is all-powerful and that God is good, and yet it seems in the world that evil exists. So therefore, philosophically, one of your statements must be false. God cannot be all-good and all-powerful and evil exists. So, do you understand the problem? If God was all-good and all-powerful, then he must make evil not exist. So 
That's the problem of evil, and it's very challenging to answer. Um, Scripture does not give us like this neat and tidy answer to the problem of evil. Why does evil exist, and how can God be good in all power? What Scripture does do, though, is it helps us in the story of Scripture understand where evil came from. And ultimately, I think this relates back to what the guys talked about a little bit in the first session. Evil did not come from God. God did not create evil. God did create a world where evil was possible, and why did he do that? Because he loves us. He loves us so much that he wants us to to give us the opportunity to represent him, to be like God. Well, God chooses to be good. You can't be like God unless you have the choice to be good, the choice to do that which is right, that which is like God. And you can't have that choice unless there was the possibility of doing that which is sin. And so God creates Adam and Eve out of love. He gives them this freedom, freedom that we don't have. They were truly morally free creatures. They could completely freely choose between obedience or sin. God made sin a possibility because he loves Adam and Eve. He wants them to be able to represent him. They can't, they're just an animal if they don't have the choice. So God gives them the choice out of love and grace. They choose sin. And that ushers evil into the world. If you look scripturally, God is not the source of evil. The choice of sinful creatures, the choice of free creatures is the source. So humanity made the wrong choice. A large section of angelic creatures made the wrong choice. And as a result, sin and evil entered the world. And ultimately, that's the explanation of all evil. Um, Would there have been tornadoes if Adam never chose sin? Man, we don't have a whole lot of data about that. What we do know (laughs) is that... All of creation was broken when the choice was made to sin. Um, When evil came into the world, creation was broken such that now in Romans 8, Paul talks about how creation groans for redemption. Literally, creation groans to be set free from the bondage of sin, just like human beings do. We have much more in common with the rest of creation than we realize. All of creation is desperate to be set free from the effects of sin, from the effects of evil. And God will accomplish that in the future. Now, with all of that said, that's some of the theological stuff behind it. Um, let's, let's get a little bit more practical. Usually when people come and talk, well, some come just for the philosophical question. It's a fun question to have lunch over. But a lot of people come because they have been affected by natural evil in some way. Okay, that's, that's really where it ultimately comes down to. So you've got big natural evil. You were affected by uh, Hurricane Katrina. Or you have more, more um, individual uh, manifestations of evil. A love person was, uh, a person you loved was murdered or they were killed in a car accident. How could God let that happen? What are you going to say to a person in the midst of that? That's really where the rubber meets the road on this question. What about the evil that affects my life? What do we say about that? And so I, I think uh, we can both throw out some, some thoughts for you guys. The first thing... That, that we want to help people understand is that in the midst of all of this, um, God is not the source of evil. Okay, we, we, God did not, um, we talked about this earlier, God did not ordain this evil to happen in your life. God is not pleased by this evil. God does not look down on a hurricane or murder or drought or whatever it might be and say, yippee, that's what I planned. I'm excited about that. And God really grieves over evil. I, I think scripturally you can make a case. God grieves more strongly than we do over the evil in the world. He hates the fact that this beautiful thing he made is broken by sin and evil. So um, helping people understand God is not happy about this and, and God doesn't want you to put a smile on. I think a lot of Christians feel like, well, if I'm a good Christian and a good follower of Christ and in the midst of my pain and suffering, I should put a smile on because God works out all things for good to those who love him. So let's put a smile on our face. Well, 
God's not smiling at the evil that happened. He hates that evil. So um, you look at the Psalms and you see David weep. That's good weeping. You're weeping over the pain that happened because that's not what God wanted. Back in Genesis 1, a, a conclusion, the end of Genesis 1, God looks at creation. He says, this is very good. Before the fall, he was so thrilled about the goodness of it all. And then it gets broken by sin and he grieves over that greatly. So we want people to understand that. But we want them to understand that even though God grieves over it in, in his power and infinite in his infinite nature this evil that happened in your life did not surprise god it didn't catch god unawares he knew it was coming it does not fit outside the realm of god's sovereignty he did allow it to happen as a part of the evil of the world and because god is infinitely good he can actually turn this really bad thing that he grieves over to a source of good in your life and another life so there's hope even in the midst of grief genuine grief and yet Hope because we have an infinitely powerful God who can turn a bad thing good. And ultimately in scripture, that's what God is doing. God's not creating evil stuff and creating good stuff and, you know, all happy about it. Evil stuff happens because God allowed that to happen. God is in the business of taking evil stuff and turning it for good. Always. That's what he's always doing. Redeeming evil stuff and making it good. Um, Because that's who he is. Well, and specifically when we we talk about um, like natural disasters, you know, the the hurricane that kind of just went up the East Coast. What was that one called? I can't remember. Irene, yeah. You know, right, right before Irene is coming, of course, there are um, television preachers who will say, Irene is God's judgment on our nation, or Irene is God's judgment on these people. Um, that happened when Katrina came through to New Orleans, right? And people say, well, New Orleans is a pretty bad place, you know, so um, God must be judging the city of New Orleans. The challenge with that from a biblical point of view is, is twofold. Um, well, biblical and kind of practical. One is, as you look at the Bible, when God wants to judge a people for their sin, he usually sends a prophet very clearly to tell them, this is going to happen to you, and it's going to happen to you because you've done that. You know, um, Jesus at one point is asked about, there was a, an accident where a tower falls over on some people and, and you know, several people died. And Jesus says, do you think that those guys who died in that tower were any worse than anybody else? And that's why God judged them. And Jesus says, no. Uh, but I'll tell you what, if you don't uh, turn to God for salvation, you all are going to experience wrath and destruction. All right. And so Jesus makes it clear that not every disaster or tragedy like that is a direct um, statement by God. What's interesting about New Orleans, you know, I was walking a couple of years ago, I was in New Orleans for a conference. I was with a friend and we were walking through New Orleans and um, we walked through the French Quarter, you know, and he said, uh, look at this. He said, if you look at Katrina came through and it wiped out a, a big portions of the city, but not this area, which is the, the worst area in town in terms of people uh, sinning and doing things they shouldn't do. You know, so if I were God and I wanted to send a message to New Orleans about uh, their sin, that would be the first place I would wipe out. But here, every area around it has fallen down and the French Quarter is still standing. Well, what does that tell me? It tells me that God did not send Hurricane Katrina uh, probably to send a message to New Orleans. It's, It's more like Blake is saying that we live in a broken and fallen world. Now, can God send earthquakes and hurricanes and things like that as punishment for sin? He, he can, uh, but typically we see in the scripture when that kind of thing happens, it's very clear this is what God is going to do. You know, you've got a Sodom and Gomorrah type situation where 
you know, even there, it's, you know, God is raining balls of fire from the sky. I mean, this is not your typical thunderstorm, right? This is pretty clear that this doesn't normally happen. And you have warning. God warns these people ahead of time for a long time. So, yeah. yeah. There's a related question that was asked. Why does God treat people unequally or unfairly? Some are born poor, some rich. Some experience these things, some don't. What do we do with that? Um, I find it helpful, even in the midst of thinking about natural disasters and poverty in Africa and things like that, to remember um, all of the things that happen in the world. What is truly good? What is best for people? What is the best? Is the best that you can buy a house and live in a comfortable house and drive a car and have a full belly all the time and work a good job and have a great education? Is that what's truly best in life? And it's interesting, you look at Jesus and what he says is best, what he says is blessed in the Beatitudes. Who are the blessed on earth? The poor, the broken, the miserable, those who are weeping, who are sad, who are persecuted. It's interesting when you look at, what, at how God works, even in the midst of these natural disasters, God, again, God doesn't like drought, he doesn't like poverty, he doesn't like hunger, and yet it's often the people that are experiencing the evil of the world who are the most blessed by God because in mercy he steps down and in the midst of their misery he gives them what they most need, life and blessing. He takes care of them. So sometimes these questions come to our mind and we don't realize what is ultimately good. Um, what is ultimately good is not that we're comfortable. Um, it may be that a hurricane comes through and it is tragic and God grieves over the destruction that the hurricane causes and yet in God's sovereignty he knows um, people need to be brought to their knees so that they will understand how much they need me. So God, that's God's incredible ability to turn bad things for good. Often it's those who are experiencing the most miserable circumstances in life who are the most blessed because they know they need God whereas so many of us in uh, materially wealthy America don't realize it. So, where do you want to go next? Well, we have about 15 minutes, and we, we still have a number of questions up here that we can't answer, but I, I'm curious. Uh, there may be some questions that are kind of burning on, on y'all as a group that you would like us to answer before we close. So I just want to, I would love to get a sense of where you guys are, and if any of you guys have any further questions that you really want us to get to before we have to wrap up. Yeah, Titus. What would y'all say to someone who just says, I, I can't love God that allows the Holocaust to happen? I always think that's kind of an interesting statement just because it, it always comes out when there is a tragedy like that. And obviously, God is the first one that people blame for uh, the Holocaust, for example. On the other hand, when wonderful things happen, um, people don't don't go, well, I, I have to love a God who could allow me to live, who could allow me to experience the beauty in his creation. Who could, you know, in other words, it often doesn't go the other direction. I, I think that there's a couple of things. One, the Holocaust, for example, is clearly an example of an activity initiated by a group of evil people who chose to disobey God. And, so, and the Bible is, couldn't be clearer about that. Um, even if you look at the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well, I think you can make a really good biblical case that any person or group of people who would make it their desire to wipe out the Jewish people is on the wrong side of God. Um, and uh, people have tried to do it, and it never works, right? Because God has consistently protected this group of people. And so um, has God allowed his people to undergo suffering and pain? He has, but as you look at the scripture, he all, it always 
grieves him and he always offers hope. Even, for example, when the Jewish people are in exile in Babylon or when uh, the Babylonians or Assyrians come in and kill thousands of them and then export the rest of them away and put them in captivity, that, that is a Old Testament holocaust. And yet you never see God rooting for the Babylonians. Um, quite the contrary, even in an instance where it's clear that the Babylonians are God's clear judgment on the nation of Israel, um, in Habakkuk, you see at the same time, God says, once I use the uh, Babylonians to do this to Israel, I'm going to go and smash the Babylonians as well, uh, because they are wicked and they are prideful and they're evil. And so um, God controls these kings, he controls these nations, and yet he does not ever approve of or root for evil. And it's just like Blake said, God has allowed us to choose what we do, um, and some people choose to disobey, and that has consequences. You know, on a small scale, um, if I choose to uh, be lustful or angry or greedy, that affects other people around me. And so my sin always has negative impact on other people. Some sins have more consequences than others, but God never approves of it. Instead, what, we, what I would say to a person like that is I would say, um, you can love that God because here is his answer to the evil in the world. His answer is he gave his own son to die in place of all of us evil sinners. Um, and he calls everybody and gives everybody the opportunity to believe in him. And through Jesus, one day he's going to restore everything just the way it was supposed to be. And what he's doing now, the reason that he's not here yet is what he's doing now is he's actually waiting in grace and kindness to allow more people the opportunity to trust him. And so that's, and that's what Peter talks about in Second Peter 3. It's not that God is slow. It's that God is waiting. He doesn't want anybody to perish. And that's the, that's the God we have. Um, but he's chosen in his wisdom not just to totally take control and smash evil now, although that day is coming. And we forget that. And you guys who've been in college class, I've used this before, but like the Jesus on the flannel board when you're in Sunday school usually isn't the one you see in Revelation 19 whose robe is dipped in blood with a sword coming out of his mouth calling the birds of the air to eat the flesh of God's enemies, right? You know, put those little birds up there. And, you know. <laughs> and the reason is because we often are uncomfortable also with the idea that God will judge wickedness um, because he hates it. And so I, that's, that's, in a sense, how I would answer is God demonstrated his love in Jesus Christ. He demonstrates his answer to injustice um, by judging it. Let, let me add to that um, uh, a, a few ways to think about this. Uh, first of all, we're human. We're very, very finite. I think it's helpful to remind people, um, you know, all we can see is what did happen how do we not know that by God allowing the Holocaust, as horrible as that is to happen, that something much, much worse was not um, prevented? I, I don't know. There's so little that I know. One day I'll know more, I think. I think God will fill in more of the blanks for us. But he sees everything. He sees all possibilities of how history could unfold. And he, he allows things to happen as he sees fit. And so to some extent, there's, there's a faith involved here. Yeah, the Holocaust is horrible, but you know what humanity is capable of. Good news about the Nazis is they didn't have a nuclear bomb. What if God allowed some of that to happen so that 
the world work some of this out before nuclear bombs got everywhere? I don't know. There's so little that I know as a human being that I just have to find this place of faith and humility where I say, I trust God. I trust that God knows. Um, the second thing that I would point people to, which is been an incredible help to me. Ultimately, you know, I, like all people, I struggle with doubts. I have doubts about this or about that when it comes to God because there's so much we don't know and there's so much that's beyond my ability to understand and there's so much that's just just hurts when you look at the pain and evil in the world and thoughts of hell and all of that kind of stuff. And I come back to the words of Peter at the end of John 6. Jesus had just taught this crazy hard stuff about his body and blood and a whole bunch of his disciples leave. Um, And Jesus said to the 12, so almost everybody else has deserted Jesus at this point, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. Um, When somebody says, I just can't believe in a God who would allow the Holocaust, I might answer them, so what are you going to believe? Where else are you going to go? Is there some other God that has worked out history in a way that is more favorable to you? Or are you simply not going to believe in a God that we're just a product of chance and all of our hopes and dreams and yearnings and passions and emotions are just inherited from monkeys? They're nothing more than animalistic tendencies. And at the end of the day, we're just going to die and be dead for eternity and the solar system and all that we've accomplished is just going to fade away. Is, is that what you want to believe? Like, Where are you going to go for truth? You have to go somewhere. And I think Peter is saying, yeah, there's a lot about what God does that we can't explain, that's hard, that's difficult. There's a lot of answers that we want. God has given us a lot of answers. He hasn't given us all the answers. In the midst of our doubts and uncertainty, are we just going to say, God, there's nowhere else for me to go? You have shown love. I mean, Matt is right. The ultimate answer is Jesus. Whatever I can't explain, ultimately the most important thing is you love me so much you sent your own son. Where else am I going to go? And so there's been many days where I've come down to that. I've just had to express the words of Peter and say, I have confidence in God because I know there's nowhere else to go. He is given life in his son. So excellent questions you asked. That's a tough one. We have like seven minutes. Yeah. Um, kind of a, as, a, as a follow-up to, to the discussion or along the lines of the discussion, I, I totally get that God is not the source of evil and that James says that God won't tempt mm-hmm. people to sin, that God is not the tempter. How do we reconcile that with passages like 1 Samuel where God sends an evil spirit to torment Saul or God hardens Pharaoh's heart? These seem like like not just allowed acts by God, but intentional directions by God that at least prevent people from not sinning. Yeah, that's a great question. The two examples you gave are actually very good ones. They're very useful as we look at the whole context of what's going on. For example, we often quote how God hardens Pharaoh's heart. What we also forget in the context is that it also tells us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Um, And so what happens is Pharaoh becomes resistant to God. Um, God then decides to use Pharaoh as an instrument for the display of his glory and the deliverance of the Jewish nation. And so Pharaoh hardens his heart. And now God works in Pharaoh's life to harden Pharaoh's heart as well in a particular instance where the hardening of Pharaoh's heart allowed for all of his people to go free. But God never did that to Pharaoh without Pharaoh being complicit in the hardening of his own heart. So Pharaoh had already made a choice to disobey God. And what God then does is just perhaps gives him a little shove in the direction he's already headed. God does not make Pharaoh evil. And God does not 
even encourage Pharaoh toward evil, God arranges the circumstances to allow Pharaoh's natural disposition to disobedience to, to run free. Um, I think you see the same thing with Saul. Saul was not a person who was naturally submissive to God or listened to God. He uh, already um, was, was jealous of David. He already was a person who protected his own authority at the expense of his relationship with God. You see that earlier in the book of uh, 1 Samuel. You see Saul deciding to take the prerogative of the high priest that doesn't belong to him. Uh, you see him refusing to totally destroy the livestock uh, that, of the Amalekites that God had commanded him to do. Um, and so Saul is already a person who has disobeyed God. Now, God sends an evil spirit. I tend to think that what that is is, again, I don't think God is telling the evil spirit to go be evil. Um, I think that's the scripture's way of saying, again, God ultimately controls even what Satan can and is allowed to do. Um, you see that in Job. Satan has to come and ask permission. Can I go mess with Job a little bit? And God says, okay, but you can only do this. You can only do this. And I think it's the same thing here. That evil spirit has to, has to on some level, have God's permission before he can even do anything. And so God allows him to go into Saul. Um, and, and I think that it's not, again, God is not the one that made the spirit evil. The evil spirit is the one that is tempting Saul. Um, God allows the spirit to go. Um, and I think in that case, as you read the text, what you see is what happens there. Well, the spirit goes into Saul. Saul develops a real liking for tossing spears at David, right? And what this does is it forces David to flee, which becomes a real critical moment in David's life because it transforms David from kind of a scared uh, shepherd boy from a guy who is serving in Saul, it transforms David now into a leader who has a group of men around him and that ultimately prepares him to be the king that God wants him to be. But I think in order to do that, he had to forcibly, in a sense, allow David to be separated from Saul. And so God um, doesn't make the evil spirit evil, but he can use that evil spirit to, do, to accomplish something he wants to accomplish. I think it's the same thing with Pharaoh. God didn't make Pharaoh evil. Pharaoh already was. But yeah, human beings and demons don't need God's help to be evil. <laughs> we are by nat- by nature we're evil enough. Really, if you look at Scripture, when, when a human being uh, is evil or a demon is evil, it's not that God's pushing them towards that. It's that God isn't holding them back as hard. Because if God just lets go of us, we all run towards evil. So God's not causing the evil. He just when evil is not happening, it's because He's holding it back and restraining it. I, I think you probably do have some of this. Uh, complexity that we talked about in the first hour between uh, this mystery between God's sovereignty and human free will um, and even demonic will, although we know very little about angels. But the Bible doesn't try to really reconcile for, uh, for us. It just helps us understand both are, are in play. That God is sovereign and human beings make choices. I think the place that I'll typically take people when either of these debates come up is actually Romans 1, verse 18 and following because it's one of the few places where you get a little bit more of a theological treatment of the question, a little more uh, Paul really walks through the stages. And that one, if, if you go look at that, is really significant because it does start with the choice of humans. 
It's going to end up in a spiral where God will turn them over to their sin and then they will choose sin and then God will turn them over and they will choose sin. It's this back and forth between humanity and God. And yet, as Paul fleshes out this really theological, really clear treatment of the subject, humanity makes the first move. Humanity sees God in creation and says no. You know, some age of accountability or whatever that is, they say no, and then God hands them over. So ultimately it is our choice. Our time is up. It's up. Time's up. Thank you, guys. Um, We appreciate it. This was fun. Feel free if you have other questions. You can always email us those questions. So.